How's everybody doing this morning? I hear a little bit of spring break hangover and a little bit of we are thrilled to be here. How many of you are spring break hangover this morning? Nobody wants to admit it, but you're here. How many of you are thrilled to be here this morning? There we go. I got to tell you, just uh, coming off this last week uh, has been... I don't know, the afterburn of Resurrection Weekend has just stayed with me all week. It's been awesome. And, uh, and I hope for many of you that's the case. I want to I wanna spend just a second and I want to share with you what happened last week, just in some numbers. They're absolutely incredible. And I want to celebrate this together. But here we go. In three services, we had 1,622 people be part of our church. Lots and lots of visitors. Now, to give you a little bit of perspective, most weekends, our New Connections team will get one, maybe two families that come up to them and say, hey, we've been visiting for a little while. We're finally ready. We're finally going to open up our chest cavity and be like, somebody can know that we're here. We don't want to be totally you know, anonymous anymore. So we're, 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 we're here. So uh, we want you to know we're here. And they, they talk with our New Connections and we really start to m- move into participation. Last weekend, we had 16 families that went out and said, we want you to know that we're here and we're excited to dig deeper into impact. Is that not cool? In addition, in addition to that, we had, and you, many of you were able to witness, and this was just extraordinary. We had 32 people that actually took the dive and with the word of their testimony, the blood of the lamb, they were baptized in our midst and we got to see that. 32 people. And because of those 32 people and their willingness to proclaim that their life was a representation of the resurrected Jesus, we had 60 Seven declarations and 67 people said, I am giving my life to Jesus this weekend. I am really thinking that that, the breath of that weekend is just going to stay with me for a long time. Just awesome to come together as a church and experience who Jesus is. Now, Some of you are visiting, we're going to dovetail out of Resurrection Weekend into our Manifesto series. We're starting a new series, maybe about six, seven weeks long when you you drop Mother's Day in there, okay? And I want you to understand some things as we dive into what this series is going to be like. And I want to start with those of you who have been checking Impact out, kind of maybe wondering whether or not you really want to, to, to get involved and really want to participate. Let's say you've been, you know, maybe a year, year and a half ago, you started attending once every month or once every couple of months. And then it, it increased every couple of weeks. You drop in to see what's going on. But you're tentative. Place is scary. Okay. And so, you know, you come in and you, you're exploring. I want you to know as you take deeper steps, we are diving into Manifesto because we've had a lot of new people join us over the course 
of this last year. And one of the things Manifesto is designed to do, listen to me now, is to help you understand the culture, the the nature of the local church called impact that we are. We want you to be, we want to pull back the curtain. We want to expose to you what the, the, the bone marrow of this place looks like, what the cellular molecular structure of the body that you are are moving into because what do you say when you've been invited to something when somebody has just been like oh you got to come be a part of this or you got to get on this board man we have an awesome board we're doing great things in our community or you should join this group or you should come to our party and you get into that and then you're quite a ways into that and you realize what it really entails whatever that thing is what's the thing you typically say man I wish I'd known that sooner I don't want those of you who are joining us 10 months or 20 months from now to be like, man, I wish I'd known that sooner. I want to make plain to you who impact is and what is the core of who we are as a church. So for the next six weeks, we're going to do that. And to do that, our word wall that you pass by every single weekend in the lobby, which I think unfortunately can just become art on a wall if we don't call attention to it. Every declaration, every phrase, every word up on that wall communicates our views and our values. And for those of you who have been here for quite a long time, matter of fact, in May, for me, I will have been part of Impact for 14 years. It's awesome. Some of you this morning, some of you this morning, I I know you've been here actually a little bit longer than that. This series is for you too, and here's why. Because it's really, really necessary sometimes to be reminded of what you're a part of. It's really, really helpful sometimes to be reminded about this, this thing called the body of Christ that you have declared because you follow Jesus, that you are part of that body, that you are part of his church what it entails, to give you language even, to communicate to the people around you in your sphere of influence that you affect, who impact is. We want to be able to do that. And so to do that, I want to start by just saying this. Here's what a manifesto is, okay? We were a little concerned calling it that because I know some of you are like, I don't know, the last manifesto I heard was Karl Marx's communist manifesto. What are we talking about here? Rest assured, this is what a manifesto is. We're taking this word back. It is a public declaration of the values and convictions of its issuer as in a group or an organization. It's a statement of what we believe at our very essence, why we believe those things and where we're going. That's the manifesto. And, uh, and so to do that today, and you might get some scroliosis, so get ready, get your phones out. Or you might get some arthritis moving between the pages of your Bible if you have your Bible with you. I'm going to start in Luke 24. Remember, I said I want to dovetail out of Easter. And so out of resurrection, what happens after resurrection? We're going to start fresh. Go to Luke chapter 24, and we're going to enter the story there today. Here we go. Here's what it says. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. Now, I want to stop real quick. These are the women who follow Jesus. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and a couple of others who follow Jesus. And I really think, now this is my sanctified imagination, but here's why I think they were there on Resurrection Sunday morning. I think that they knew that the men had actually buried Jesus. 
and that the men probably got the wrong spices and probably wrapped them in the wrong linens, et cetera, et cetera, right? You guys know what I'm talking about. Husbands out there, yeah? Hey, babe, I'll clean the kitchen for you. I know you're tired. I'm gonna get in there and clean it all up. I don't know. I used the sanitizers in there, babe. That was acid. You can't use. Okay, and then she goes in after you're like, I cleaned the kitchen. And she cleans the kitchen. You know what I'm talking about. She comes and she takes care of it. Bless you, honey, for cleaning that. But I'll actually do it. This is what the ladies are doing. We're going to get the right spices. Joanna, go get those. Let's get the linens. We're going to get Jesus buried the right way. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus while they were perplexed about this. Now, I want to stop there for just a second. And all I want to say is this. Sometimes part of why it's scary to jump into a church and to join, especially if you're un and de church, that is, you've never been part of church, you don't know anything about the story of Jesus, or you've been de church and somebody's hurt you. Part of why it can be scary is because it's perplexing. Sometimes you come in confused and you're like, I don't know, I'm not real good with the Bible study uptake. You know what I'm saying? I I sit there and I read it and it just doesn't make sense. You are in good company. In fact, you're going to make a really good disciple based on this story. These women had been with Jesus. They had experienced Jesus. They had gone through all sorts of things with Jesus. And they are staring at this empty tomb and they are confused. And heaven itself, God himself is like, They're going to walk in, even though they heard, even though Jesus told them explicitly and exactly, they're going to walk in, they're going to be confused. And and lest you guys out there are like, well, it's just the women that are confused. No, no. The men actually find out from the women, they run and they're like, oh my gosh, what happened? Okay. They're as confused, if not more confused when they get in. These are people who had followed Jesus. These are the current disciples of Jesus. They're perplexed. Behold. Two men stood by them in dazzling apparel and they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. And these men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? And we're going to stop there. Church, this question, I'm telling you, let's name these two angels that God has sent to meet the lady. Let's, let's call them George and Clarence. You know, I don't know. It's a wonderful life or something like that, right? It's George and Clarence. And all the way from heaven to earth, they're thinking, man, we got to come up with a really good question because this one's actually going to get written in scripture. Clarence is the thinker. And he's like, you know what? I just, what confuses me is how often humans look for life in death. How often people pursue what they think is going to ultimately satisfy, what they think is ultimately going to breathe life into them, what they think is ultimately going to fulfill them, that's going to give them meaning and purpose. So very often, they go back to the same broken systems. They go back to the same broken structures. They go back to the thing that has been shattered and shattering them, and they think maybe this time it'll actually give life. Why? Clarence says, why do you seek the living among the dead? We do this, my friends. We do this. Let's just start. Let's talk about money and stuff for just a second. Money and stuff. Now, most of you are going to be like, I don't pursue that. That's not my life pursuit. Yeah, but every single week you get up and you dedicate an extraordinary amount of your energy, resources, and time to money and stuff. And for a lot of us, 
It becomes the cul-de-sac of stupidity. And I say that with great affection, but we just go round and round, back to the same thing, looking from stuff for more meaning. And I get it, right? And I'm I'm not saying money and stuff is stupid. I'm actually saying you're stupid. (laughs) Me too. Me too. I'm not joking. I I can see one ad at Cabela's. One, just commercial. Not something I never thought about before, but now I have to have that thing. That thing is going to satisfy. And then get the thing. And then the thing doesn't satisfy. And instead of learning, I'm like, well, it's because it's an old thing. So I'll go to a new thing, right? I'll I'll chase a new thing. We do this. It's a cul-de-sac of stupidity. Not that money and stuff is bad, but we're going to the wrong place for life. We're going to an inanimate thing that cannot provide life. And, you know, it gets even worse. It gets even crazier and the angels are like how do we say this don't look for don't look for life out of death you know last i checked in america still about a hundred percent of us die i think the death rate is around 100 percent of americans is that is that correct i think that's the statistic recently okay so what happens when you die all your treasures this is what happens to your stuff the thing you absolutely had to have, all the stuff you love so much, your kids are gonna pilfer through your stuff. And all they see, I hate to to tell you this, is junk. (laughs) Your treasures is their junk that they gotta take care of, at least least 98% of it. And they're literally gonna hold up like you're, you know, wow, these mom jeans, when did mom get so big? We better take that, you know, down to Fromm's Treasures Thrift Store and give it to them. And you know what we're going to do? We're going to make money off your deadness. Amen. That's just the truth. Clarence and George are like, don't go to money and stuff. Here's, here's just one more for you, golfers. Remember the clubs you absolutely had to have? Some dude you don't even know is going to pick those clubs up down at Frum's Treasure Strip Store and be better golfer than you with your clubs. <laughs> it happens. But we go back to, to money and we go back to stuff. How about status? Here's another one. Status. If I could just get the next degree. If I could just get the next job promotion. If I could just get that title. I want that title, man. That title will fulfill me. And you know what it is? It's like climbing Mount Everest. Every time you come over what you thought was the summit, there's another summit. Every time you get the vice presidency and that's what you were after, you find out there's 35 other vice presidents of the same thing in your company. And so maybe the presidency will do it for And eventually you get to the thing and you attain the thing and you're like, there's nothing but emptiness in that thing. I just leaned success up against the wrong wall is what I did. Or, or, or how about self-improvement? Self-improvement. You, you, you fitness nuts out here. And I believe in health. I think it's important to take care of the temple that God gave us. Amen? That is important. But when you deify your fitness and you spend every waking moment taking selfies of the abs you're developing and posting them so everybody else can see them. I got a newsflash for you. I don't wanna see your abs. 
You, you've taken something that will not ultimately satisfy and you're on a, a, you're racing to try to get to the next thing and to the next thing and to the next thing. Or hobbies, hobbies, you know, self-improvement in your hobbies. Uh, back to you golfers, picking on you golfers. You're not, you're never gonna be a great golfer. You're never gonna be the best golfer. I've played with some of you, you cheat anyway. Well, just give it a little boot. Nope, that was, yeah, that's not, there it is. Yeah, oh, I got it right there. Okay, all right, whatever. You're, you're, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't satisfy the longing or the yearning of the depth of purpose that Jesus Christ in him alone can satisfy. And do you know why? Because we're, what we're doing in all these things is we're worshiping and serving created things rather than the creator who made us in his image to find our ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction in him. And that's what these angels know. And they're like, man, we gotta, we gotta remind you of some stuff right now because you're, you're going after the wrong thing again in the wrong place. Why are you doing that? We do this with religion. We do this with relationships. How many of you just putting way, way too much emphasis on relationships in your life? Over and over again. Ultimate fulfillment in that next relationship. We do this uh, singles looking for the person who's gonna fulfill you and complete you. Let me just tell you, talk to some married people and ask them if another human being is completing them. <laughs> Marriage is good. Glorious, that's, it is. God intended it, but, but it's, that person will turn frail and brittle and fragile and they will crumple under the weight of your worship of them because your worship belongs to God. And so we could go on and on about the things that we move from a position of created thing to the creator himself, but our angels are like, Let's, look, we wanna draw your attention back to something. So verse six says this, he is not here. See, he is not here. He has risen. Remember, here's our reminder, church. Those of you who've known Jesus for five hours and those of you who've known him for 50 years, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee. I think the angels are perplexed. I think the angels are like, we're confused. He told you in Luke uh, 9 twice exactly what would happen. He said it again, at least uh, pretty clearly to our thinking in like 13. And in 18, Luke 18, he was so explicit. Hey guys, gather around. This is what's gonna happen. Sinful men are gonna hand me over to be crucified. I'm gonna be killed, crucified, uh, flogged. And then I I I'm gonna rise from the dead. He told you this. So we thought you people, you disciples would be like waiting Sunday morning outside the tomb, you know, the, the rock, all of you gathered around like five, four, three, two, here he comes, one, move that bus, Jesus. That's what we thought you were going to do, but you didn't, you didn't do that. And matter of fact, while he was still in Galilee, he told you these things that the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. And on the third day rise and they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the rest. You know, I think, I think 
the angels are perplexed for a very good reason because I think it is so easy for us to miss Jesus. And that is what we cannot do. That is what you will see on our word wall. If you are paying attention in the very center of the word wall, you will see Jesus. He's in the middle. He's central on purpose. He is in bold on purpose because it's always been about Jesus. It is still about Jesus and it will always be about Jesus at our core, the very core of who we are as a church. And that fact needs communicated. It needs, we need reminded of it on a regular basis. I want you to, to move over to second Timothy. Okay. I'll give you just a little prefix. Paul is done. Paul's ministry is over. He says himself, he's being poured out like a drink offering. The end has come for Paul and he is handing over, I would argue, the most precious church that he has, the church of Ephesus. He's handing it to a very young, very inexperienced pastor, Timothy, but one that has the anointing of God on him. And in the fourth chapter of Timothy, we come upon some of the richest text to describe the church and what we are to be about collectively as a church. So flip on over there, second Timothy chapter four, we're going to be in verses one through five, starting off with Jesus, right where they left us, right where our angels left us. We want to remind you about Jesus. We want to remind you about his gospel. Here's what Paul says to Timothy. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom, stop, and by his appearing and his kingdom, Jesus, whatever the charge is going to be, the white hot why, whatever comes next for Timothy, the white hot why is going to be Jesus. He holds the preeminency and the supremacy of first place for me, this is what Paul is saying, for you if you know him and for us as a church impact, his authority, his way, his leadership, his teaching, his breath of life, his purpose, his visioning, his grace and his truth. It has always been Jesus. It is still Jesus and it will always be Jesus. His appearing and his kingdom. You know what, you know what concerns me church? Number one on the list of our manifesto, Jesus, here's what concerns me, is we'll miss him just like the disciples missed him. You can get really good. You can come to church every weekend. You can figure out all the nooks and crannies of how we work, where to park so your exit is faster so you can go get brunch, where to check your kids out exactly the time your kid needs to be there, which coffee machine makes the best coffee. Some of you have got that nailed. I watch you study it, right? You can figure out when to raise your hands, how to worship just right, how to look. You can get, you can get super good at even in, in here, you know, mm, mm, you can say, Ryan's dropping fire today. <laughs> praise hands, praise hands, praise hands. Fire, 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 fire. Mmm, so good. Tell me we don't do this. Tell me we don't do this. We do this all the time as a church on social media, as a flag to say, hey, look what I'm doing. Ooh. Now, not all of you do it for that reason. 
But this is what we do. We get really good at the the new religiosity and we miss Jesus. It keeps me up at night. It keeps our staff up at night. I think it keeps some of you up at night. I do not want to miss the reason for our salvation. I do not want to miss the reason for our sanctification or our justification or eventually our glorification. It is all Jesus. It's always been Jesus and his gospel. And we cannot forget that, church. We will not at impact. He's first. He's first on the wall. He's first in manifesto, Jesus. Colossians says it this way. One, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the church, the body. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's Jesus and that's the gospel. And that's where Paul takes us next. The second verse in Timothy is this, preach the word by his appearing and by his kingdom. I charge you, Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Listen, preaching the word, Jesus heralds his bards, his storytellers are you and I. Wherever we go, whatever we influence, whoever we touch, is an opportunity to proclaim by your actions, your words, your demonstration, your example, who Jesus is, to preach his word. Not part of it, in season and out, all of it, all the time. This preach the word is such a fascinating, if you move up out of the fourth chapter and you go to the last verse, of the third chapter of Timothy, right before this, Paul says, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, and training in righteousness. All scripture is God-breathed. Listen, this is a powerful theological concept. The word, preach the word, comes out of a belief that three times in scripture, just three times, God breathed, theos neustos, Theos neustas with Adam, the earth. When God created humanity, he took earth, he touched earth. First time that he touches, he shapes, he forms Adam. He creates the very physique of mankind. And then he doesn't stop there and he doesn't declare life. He reaches down with his lips. He puts them over Adam's nostrils and he breathes Theos neustas into Adam, the breath of life, the spirit of God, the image of God. It's the first time that it happens. The second time that it happens is these terrified disciples that should have been welcoming the, to- the, the, the tomb being empty. They should have known what the heck was going on. They are huddled up in a room, hiding out because they are certain 
that their leader's just been killed and they're next. And Jesus appears to them after this story we read in 24. And he comes just, just appearing through the walls, however he got there, and they're shocked. And in this moment, Pentecost, Jesus breathes, it says, the ruach of life, the spirit of life over the church. Do you understand? You carry the second covenant, the new covenant of the breath of life in you as the temple. Everywhere you go, preach the word. Take in God's breath and breathe out his good news, his gospel with every fiber of your being all the time. Paul is saying the third thing that got the breath of life are the holy scriptures. The word has been breathed on. So you can be assured that the more you digest, the more you consume, the more you eat the word of God, the better able you will be to disseminate that word, the better able you will be to tell the story of Jesus. Three things that have theosnustas. Let's make sure the church is doing this. And listen, listen, be ready in season and out of season. Preach the word, be ready. And this is what this means. It's not always gonna be popular. How many of you know that personally? There's gonna be times when people are just eating. They wanna hear, they're desperate for it. There's other times where they're gonna be like, shut the front door. Literally and figuratively, get, get out of my life. I don't wanna hear it. I don't wanna hear that. I wanna keep living in my deception. I wanna keep living in my deceit. Be ready in season and out of season. Here's Paul. Hey, church! Listen up, do this, stay focused on this, not that. You're gonna be pulled, you're gonna be swayed. People are gonna try to dissuade you from the message. They're gonna try to convince you that it's not about Jesus. They're gonna try to, to pull you in a direction that is absolutely away from life and towards death. Don't, don't let them do it. Preach the gospel, church, not human opinion. Preach the word, church, not popular philosophy. Preach the gospel, church, not the hottest social trends. Preach the word, not the latest psychobabble. Preach the gospel, not the sickest political platform. Preach the word, not the newest hashtag. Preach Jesus, good news, not the best dressed lies of society. Amen. And he's saying it and he's intent on it because he knows it's going to be a problem. See, here's the deal. The gospel isn't about making bad people better. It's not. It's about making dead people alive. And that is a far more significant and sobering call. In season and out of season. This passage from 1 Corinthians hit me between the eyes this week. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians about this. He says, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Uh-uh, I didn't. I know that. I know I'm not the greatest preacher. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I love that. So encouraging to me. Should be so encouraging to us as the church. You're gonna tremble You're not going to think you have anything worth saying to say. You're going to be convinced if you open your mouth, you might lose your job. You are going to be in every way pushed away from preaching the word. You know this is not the season to say that right now. You also know the Holy Spirit is saying to you, say it. Share it, do it. They need it, it's life. And they're a headlong rush towards annihilation. I'm gonna preach the word. We are gonna preach the word. The second manifesto is the gospel. The gospel, and it is Christ crucified. And it is Christ crucified dead and buried, and it is Christ raised to life for us. It's the gospel. It's the good news that brings ultimate life satisfaction and fulfillment. We at Impact as a church will never stop preaching the gospel here. Do you understand me, church? We will hold its significant high. We will make it of paramount importance. And if you want to be a part, then we are calling you, the church, into doing the same thing. I sometimes get frustrated because uh, some of us like to sort of sidle up to one of my teaching team on occasion because you've been in church for a really long time, you know, years and years, you heard it all. You think within about five seconds, I'm like, no, you haven't heard it all. But okay, you wanna know when we're gonna get to the deep things. What about the deep things? You know, you talk about Jesus and stuff, and that's cool, and you talk about the gospel and stuff, and that's cool, you talk about the crucifixion and resurrection and stuff, and that's cool, but when are we, when are we gonna get to the deep things? I, you know, just practically, you know what I think you mean? Because I'm trying to interpret that. I literally will sit back a little bit, be like, what's that? that mean? Uh, I think what you mean is when is it going to get to the point where you are literally theosophical? You guys know that's a word? When you talk deep, confused. When are you going to get to the point where it's so theosophical that I can sit, all four of us to take notes and be like, mm-hmm, oh, so good. And then some poor soul next to me is like, what's he saying? I have no idea, but it sounds good. The gospel is not a shower that you spritz yourself with on occasion to clean up. The gospel is the whole ocean, man. It's the whole thing. It's, it's simple. It needs to be. It's basic. It's gotta be. It's easy to understand. It is necessary that it's easy to understand. And it is complex. And it is deep. And it is difficult. It's the whole 
shooting match. It's the whole word. And we're going to continue to preach the whole word here. Now, I'll give you one example. If, if you wonder what I'm talking about, sometimes people are like, well, I just, you know, there's parts of the Bible I just don't like. I don't, I don't want to go there. And if you've ever taught like a college age class, the Song of Solomon, I don't know if any of you maybe have ever done that. But it's crazy because it'd be like, uh, you know, you're, you're three verses in and they like t- turn the Bible over and they look at it. Is this really the Bible? It's God's instruction on how we are to express our sexuality. It's erotic literature in the Bible. It's part of the gospel. Ben was talking earlier. We're going to talk about this, how the gospel gets in and affects and influences and brings life, real life to our marriages so that our marriages look different than the world around us. Is that in the Bible? I can't believe it. Oh, there's stuff in there. He moves on, he says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, rebuke, or excuse me, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. We're going to stop right there. This is the third phrase, and it is sincere love, you'll find, on the wall. And reproving and rebuking and exhorting is just this, church, it is truth. It is truth. It is delivery of the truth. And if it's not sincere, If you're not doing it sincerely, it doesn't sound like the truth. And if it's just the truth without sincerity, then you're just beating people over the head with it. But look at what he's saying. This is where in the passage, if there's an ouch, it's right here. To reprove is to reprimand. And it's actually specifically in the Greek to reprimand our thought life, to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. He's saying the scriptures can and should be used to transform the way we think. And some of us are squirming already because we don't love that. It goes further. Rebuke is an active criticism, but in the Greek, it's an active criticism of your feelings. How many of you love the phrase, don't tell me how to feel? I I didn't write it. The scripture will tell you how to feel. The scripture will tell you that you have, through the power of God and the Holy Spirit, the ability to take dominion over your feelings. Now, I'm not saying it happens like that. No. For some of us, it does. For others of us, we need reproof and we need rebuke over and over again. And the next one is exhort. And you thought it was going to get better because exhort sounds nicer. And in the NIV translation, I think they kind of gave some ground. One of these three has to feel kind of nice, right? So we're going to translate it encourage. And it does mean encourage, but it means encouragement and a whole lot more. Exhort is to spur someone on. It's to goad. I grew up on a farm. Dehorn cattle. You ever dehorn cattle before? It's epic. Okay, I'm not even going to describe it. It's just too gory for church. Okay. For stress relief, my brother and I would get the cattle prodder out and we just poke each other. That's a goading. It means to take someone who's going in a perverted way, that is a way away from God, who's, who's in a headlong rush to escape God, wayward, and to take that person and actually redirect them with a goad or a prod. Yes, it's encouraging. It's just encouraging in a very different direction. <laughs> Exhortation. 
I have a um, I have a rooster. <laughs> I'm going to tell you a quick story. Uh, and uh, it, he's a big rooster. He, he, he is a beautiful rooster. And lately, he's gotten to feeling his oats a little bit. You know, like I have. Can, he will take my two German short-haired pointers, which are a bird dog, and he will take both of them at the same time and send them packing across the yard. True story. And after conquering them, he's been eyeing humans for the last couple of months. Now, this is not just any rooster. He is, he is a fit rooster with a beautiful comb. And he's a Jersey giant. That's his breed. He's like twice the size of normal chickens. He's like Dwayne the Rock Johnson rooster. Now, the other day, I was doing the chores in... Um, you know, I gather the eggs, so I got to kind of shoo the hens away. And then I go to get the food. You guys have heard the phrase, don't bite the hand that feeds you. Um, our roosters never heard that before. I scooped up some grain. I took it in. I'm pouring it in. I should have been paying more attention. I know. I grew up on a farm, right? I dumped the stuff. I turn. I'm in the doorway. I'm like walking out. And this rooster claws up the back of my leg like it is some sort of ladder and he's got both spurs going and he's got his beak pulling himself up and I'm telling you I'm my, just so you know this about me you know fight or flight my natural knee-jerk reaction is not flight it's fight I didn't even think I wasn't even sure what it was I just knew I was being attacked and I landed a heavenly haymaker on the top of his head <laughs> I'm not kidding. It was awesome. This bird does six flips into the middle of a horse pen, like wings out. <laughs> Several minutes cannot gain its consciousness. Some of you are like, oh, that's so mean to do that to a bird. She's seen the back of my leg. Okay. And here's the deal. If something doesn't redirect him, if something doesn't reprove, rebuke, and exhort him to move in a different direction, he's going to do that to one of my kids. And you want to talk about lights out, it's going to be lights out in a whole different way for him. So there is a kindness, there is a kindness in this rebuke, but Paul does not stop there. And this is why it's beautiful. Radical grace is our fourth radical grace. You'll find it on the wall. He says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. How? With complete patience and careful instruction. With complete patience and careful instruction. Listen to me, church. Listen. If you are running around delivering every kind of bombastic truth you can imagine, you are doing more damage to Jesus Christ and the gospel of God than you are helping all day long, 10 times more. There is a way, there is a right way to say the right thing that brings about the righteousness of God. And there is a wrong way to say the right thing. And when you say the right thing in the wrong way, you might as well just keep your mouth shut and not say anything at all. Complete patience actually means, in the original language, perfect patience. I would like some of you to take with complete patience and careful instruction and paste it on the top of your device and your screen and look at it every time you think about opening up social media. 
careful instruction. It means to take care that you do not allow carelessness into how you are going to deliver sincere love. Radical grace, listen, radical grace is how you came to know Jesus no other way. His grace is what allows us to come to him. Nothing you did and nothing you worked at. And believe you me, if we're going to deliver the gospel, it has got to be with radical grace. The same radical grace that was given to you when God breathed the ruah of life over you has got to be the same radical grace that you use when you communicate to others of his goodness. Complete patience, perfect patience, and careful instruction. Listen, John 1, 14 says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And here's why. The last, the last this week that we're gonna talk about for just a second is the world, okay? I'm actually gonna have the guys get a video queued up because it's really, really, really easy to hear this instruction, the next instruction from Paul, verses three and four. And it's really easy to get on our righteous, our self-righteous high horse and think, yep, that's the world. Thank goodness I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, and it's me and Jesus, and everybody else can go to hell in a handbasket. It's easy to read that into these words in verse three and four. So Paul says, after Complete patience and careful instruction for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Anybody feel like that's prevalent right now in our society? Hmm? It is. You're right. Listen to what a guy who said it better than I can say it, how he describes what's happening right now. Now, before we go any further, and I promise it won't be much longer, okay? I can't guarantee that promise because sometimes I don't do what I want to do. <laughs> can, 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 can we come together on one big thought before we go any further? And, and that is that this idea that is being popularized in modern society and culture, and it's been around for longer than modern culture and society, and that is that your feelings are truth. This is one of the scariest ideas floating around right now in our culture. And this is what we are being told. We are being told that if you have feelings, dare I say you have repetitive feelings, you have feelings that keep coming back, for you to resist those, or for you to fight those, or for you to stand against those, or question those, you are fundamentally disingenuous and you are not authentic. When you have repetitive feelings, those feelings are not just feelings, that is who you really are. Those urges, those desires, those impulses, that defines who you are. So lean into that, follow those impulses, follow those desires. In other words, live your truth, or more specifically, live how you feel. Okay, okay, okay. At face value, it kinda sounds fun. I'll admit that, I'll admit that, it does. 
It kind of sounds fun. Until you step back as a logical person and go, the whole constructs of our society and governments, countries and continents are predicated upon what? People not doing what they want to do right when they want to do it, whenever they want to do it with whoever they want to do it with. In fact, we have police forces, and do you know one of the reasons they're here? To keep you from doing that exact thing you want to do when you want to do it. Why? Because it will be chaos. So they make for great hashtags, but they make for a horrible existence. So, so it's th th this, this idea is fundamentally flawed that we all go from this place and hey, I felt it again. Oh, there it is again. Yeah, that's, I'm going to do it. That's me. No, no, no. Don't follow your heart. Listen to me. Question your heart. Jeremiah says the heart is wicked and deceitful. Who can know it? The answer is not you, not me, only one, the one who made it, God. Question your feelings. Question your desires. Question your heart. One of the most diabolical ideas or advice you could ever get is, hey, slugger, champ, follow your heart. Like, who can even define the heart? Do you know how many centuries theologians have debated what the mind, the will, the heart, the soul? The, I mean, the guy in front of me in the plane that I fly into Portland, he's reading a whole thesis on the soul, and the guy read, we're confused. The heart is just, it's kind of like, it's, 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 I don't know, follow your heart. I can't even find my heart. <laughs> what kind of fractured advice is that? I believe living by feelings is a fundamentally dehumanizing existence. It reduces you, it animalizes you. You become animalistic. And you end up living by your instincts. And I am here to say that I have never met a single person. And I've been out and about a bit. I've never met the person who says, hey, can I tell you my story? I have learned to do what, whenever I feel it, however I feel it. I do it right. I act immediately on what I feel, my sensations, my desires, and my urges. And can I just say for the last 25 years, the trajectory of my life has gone steadily just like this. I am so happy and fulfilled. Never. Instead, you meet people who've taken this simple yet absolutely toxic idea. And what do they end up with? Man, I, I don't know. I, I, I've lost. I, I, I've, I've done it. I, I'm, what do I do now? Living by your instincts is not what God designed you for. Okay, it's, and it's not what you want. You know, the truth is some of you want some stuff right now. It's not what you want. God actually knows what you want. I don't really know what I want, but I know that God knows what I want. And so when I want what I want, I question why I want it. And then I wonder, God, is this what you want me to want? Because I'm wanting something right now and I really want it. But do you, if you don't want it, I don't want it. I mean, I do want it, but I don't want it if you don't want it <laughs> because you know what I should want. And if I want what you want, I'm going to end up where I ultimately really want. I don't want to be alone in a big house by myself, my kids despise me, my wife has left me, and my grandkids don't even know me. With a strong drink in my hand going, I lived it up. <laughs> Have you ever met that person who's like, that's what I'm looking for. 
No. But yet we're not telling the truth in our society. That, that more often than not, that is the end of living by your feelings. You guys can go ahead and put the uh, diagram. I drew this diagram this week just as I was trying to think through how this fleshes out because I hear in, in that poignant piece that Judah Smith spoke, I hear such a clear delivery, such an anointing describing the desperation of the deceit that our world has fallen prey to, hand over fist. If you have ever been on Instagram and read any series of memes, you can see the dripping nature of self-delusion and deceit all around you. That ends up leading people to that place that Judah Smith described. The opposite of life and total death, and I hear desperation. Paul, in verses three and four, describes that kind of world that is out there. But we, church, are charged with taking Jesus, Jesus, the good news that he's breathed into us, into that world. And so I wanted, for those of us who are visual, I wanted you to see it starts with Jesus. It's always going to start with Jesus and the good news that will save people and eventually transform their lives through radical grace and sincere love, sandwiching what the gospel looks like. Why though? In the end, what's the what? What's our what? The world. The world. See, if we just come in here as a church and do our little holy huddle and get all fired up, we're getting fired up about nothing. Jesus is like, I didn't do that. If I had done that, I would have stayed in the tomb. Nobody was there to welcome me. I busted out of the tomb and I came and I found you and I said again. And he did it over and over. I could give you story after story of the encounters after his resurrection, calling the disciples back to the point, which is him. As a church, the final charge, Paul says here in verse five is this. As for you, and I took the liberty of putting impact in it. As for you, impact. Always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, an interventionist. Fulfill your ministry wherever you go, church, whatever the scenarios where everybody else is running after stuff and money and everybody else is running after status and everybody else is trying to do something to self-improve and everybody else is convinced that religion is going to save them and everybody else thinks that, that, that this next relationship, this next relationship will be the thing. No, no, no. Everywhere you go. Endure hardship because it's going to be hard. People are going to hate you for it. They're going to persecute you for it. They're going to push back. But the desperation on the other side of that door requires you endure suffering sober-mindedly as an evangelist with the vessel that God has given you, the talents and the gifts and the experiences that make up your existence. Give it all, all of it to Jesus and see what he will do to rescue other people with you. A close from this quote from C.S. Lewis. 
just to remind us, I think we need a reminder so often of the people that are on the other side of that door. There are no ordinary people, he says. You have never talked ever to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors, immortal horrors, or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. Mm -mm. We must play and laugh and be full of joy, but our merriment must be of the kind and it is in fact the merriest kind which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, and no presumption. So this week, I'm asking you this week, tomorrow, this afternoon, Tuesday, I'm asking you to take Jesus and his good news, the gospel, with you, with no superiority, with no presumption, with no arrogance, and with patience and endurance and careful instruction. That's what impact is going to stay about. Sincere love, radical grace, always. Let's pray. God, I give you each life here. I give you their next step, literally their next step out into the aisle and who they talk to. Their next breath. And I don't give it to you because it's mine to give. I mean that in that we confess that you have given that. And so we offer up what you have given us in our lives. God, may we as a church take seriously this charge that we've been given this morning. May it linger with us all week. And may it resound through the future of our lives. I pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks, everybody. You're dismissed.